My fellow Americans tonight with a heart full of gratitude and boundless optimism. I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. With the White House as his stage, President Trump accepted his party's nomination for re-election. Amid the chaos of the pandemic, protests calling for racial justice, and disastrous wildfires and hurricanes, the Republican National Convention was a four-night-long Trump rally. While much of the programming was pre-recorded and virtual, it ended with a fiery speech to a crowd of 1,500 on the White House South Lawn. There were few masks in sight and no social distancing. This is the most important election in the history of our country. And protesters gathered just outside the grounds. Underscoring the president's portrait of a nation divided. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. President Trump also defended his response to the COVID-19 pandemic that's claimed more than 180,000 American lives and crippled the country's economy. Some speakers referred to the coronavirus in the past tense, though it is far from eradicated. It was awful. Health and economic impacts were tragic. But First Lady Melania Trump did acknowledge that many Americans are still impacted by the virus, and she struck an empathetic tone, addressing the nationwide calls for racial justice. Like all of you, I have reflected on the racial unrest in our country. It is a harsh reality that we are not proud of parts of our history. And there were other efforts to draw in voters of color, who overwhelmingly vote Democratic. Our family went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. There are millions of families just like mine seeking to live the American dream. And I'm here tonight to tell you that supporting the Republican ticket gives you the best chance of making that dream a reality. But other speakers highlighted the country's divisions, portraying the president as their defender in the culture wars, and warning of a grim future under Democratic leadership. They want to steal your liberty, your freedom. They'll disarm you, empty the prisons, lock you in your home, and invite MS-13 to live next door. Republicans painted Democratic nominee Joe Biden as dangerous and beholden to the far left of his party. The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. He's a Trojan horse with his party's entire left wing just waiting to execute their pro-criminal, anti-police, socialist policies. Throughout the convention, the president and his allies argued that he's kept the promises he made four years ago. So how did he defend his record and make the case for another term in office? And will it energize his base while winning over voters on the fence? From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Amna Nawaz. I'm here with my NewsHour colleagues, White House correspondent Yami Shalcindor and political reporter Daniel Bush to discuss the RNC. Hey, thanks so much for joining me, guys. How you doing tonight, Yami? You good? I am tired and in the basement of the White House, but I'm doing fine. <laughs> Dan, what about you? Are you in a basement somewhere? 
I'm not, but I am also tired. It's been a long two weeks. It's been a long two weeks. Let's just look back at this one last week. Yamish, this was not the convention that President Trump wanted, right? What do you think about the convention format, about the message that he delivered this week? This was definitely not the convention that President Trump wanted. He had been pushing for a long time to have an in-person convention. First, he was going to go to North Carolina. He got into a real big argument with the governor of North Carolina, a Democrat, who said there really wasn't a way to safely do an in-person, large, traditional convention. Um, After he got mad at that and kind of left, he then moved on to Jacksonville, Florida. But the coronavirus then exploded in Florida. It became a, a, a national hotspot. Yamisha, what about the fact that we saw the White House quite a bit, both as the backdrop for some of these events, but also where the president delivered his acceptance speech? Well, there used to be this thing called the Hatch Act. It's still in it's still alive, but it's supposed to separate official White House business from political campaign business. But today we saw all of that mesh. Um, Never have the lines been blurred um, between the White House and the Trump campaign as they were today. It almost took my breath away when I walked out to the South Lawn and saw it really transformed into a campaign rally style style setting. Um, Also, the seats we're so close together. I thought, well, how are they going to space these people out? Because we're all, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And what we saw was hundreds of people, something about a thousand to fifteen hundred people sitting shoulder to shoulder, um, listening to the president. And Dan, when you look back at the way the president and the Republicans put on their convention, it was very different from the way the Democrats presented their picture, right? A lot of people are talking about even the naturalization ceremony that took place during the RNC. There was a lot of sort of showmanship built into the programming. There certainly was, Amna. And, you know, Republicans all week sort of uh, made gestures towards reaching out to all Americans towards broadening the president's base. There's a lot of talk about the lowest unemployment on record for African-Americans and so on. But it was telling tonight that right when President Trump was making a claim that he had done more for the black community in three years in office than Joe Biden in 47 years, the camera panned to the crowd that was there to see him deliver his speech, and it was almost entirely white. And that sort of encapsulated the Republican National Convention to me, you know, this this sort of outreach. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it is the base. Um, and, you know, Trump's message has not really changed. And Yamish, in talking to that base, one of the things we saw again and again this week was a consistent, persistent attack on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and branding them as socialists every step of the way. Is that an effective strategy for Trump right now? It can be, um, depending on whether or not Republicans and independents really believe him. The president's really trying to make the case that um, if Joe Biden is elected, that the that the country would not be safe. There were a lot of other applause lines, like he said, I have never been fought on an issue like immigration in Washington, D.C. He also said that Joe Biden has always been on the wrong side of history. And then he said he was a Trojan horse for socialism. So that was really underscoring and wrapping up all of those ideas because the president's essentially saying that Democrats really want people to be living off the government and they want to give everyone free things. Um, There are a lot of people who believe that, including maybe some independents. That's how President Trump won in 2016. But Democrats say that a lot of that is just plainly false. Dan, one of the things we were told before the week began was that President Trump and the Republicans would present a much more optimistic view of America. They said it would contrast with what we heard from Joe Biden, who they said was very dark in his presentation of where America is. 
Is that what you saw this week? Well, not really, Amna, I think, is the short answer. You know, sure, uh, the Trump campaign did, you know, sort of flick at optimism. um, But for the most part, it was a very stark warning. If you don't reelect me, this country is really going to go down a wrong path. Joe Biden is not a savior of America's soul. He is the destroyer of America's jobs. And if given the chance, he will be the destroyer of American greatness. Um, but, you know, interestingly, um, I would argue also that Joe Biden was saying a similar thing last week. I mean, yes, he was he was more optimistic at times. He did call on Americans to come together. But he also said uh, this is a battle for the soul of the nation. And he said many times throughout the campaign that he believes that if Donald Trump is reelected, the country will will be sort of irreparably harmed. So there's not there's not a lot of middle ground here. So, Yamish, to that point, obviously, the point of political conventions is to message to your supporters, right? You want to get them excited. You want to get them mobilized. You want to get them, in this case, to request their absentee ballots or figure out what their plan is to vote. There was a little bit in the Republican messaging about trying to broaden the base a little bit. There were some folks that they didn't necessarily have the majority of the vote of support for before that they seem to be messaging to consistently, specifically women, right, who they've kind of lost some support with, and black voters. Did you notice some consistent messaging to those two groups over the last week? You saw a number of African-American speakers at the Republican convention, including Alice Johnson, a woman who had been in prison and who was released under President Trump. I am alive. I am well. And most importantly, I am free. You saw the president's um, likely his top black advisor in the White House, a man named Jerron Smith, who said that President Trump has always put um, as a priority the issues that are most important to African-Americans. But critics of the president, and I would say I would say about 95 percent of the black people that I talked to, they really believe that the president isn't trying to win their vote because the president has not said black lives matter. We need to really understand why African-Americans are killed at two and a half to three times the rate of white people. Instead, what we've heard from the president is this law and order message that things need to get get back to normal, that people need to stop protesting. He's been accusing Americans who are demanding racial justice of being anarchists and domestic terrorists. So people think that the president is really talking about racial issues to convince white women in the suburbs in particular, and he's trying to win them back by trying to prove, look, I do have some people of color who believe in my agenda. Yamish, just to follow up on that, we should point out that the president's actually increased his support among black voters in America, right? Not a ton, but it's gone up since 2016. Do Republicans, does the White House think that they can carve away enough of black voters in America to make a difference? The Republican Party has been talking about broadening the base for a long time. And even though some polls might show that his his numbers have ticked up with African-Americans, he still won a dismal amount of African-Americans. And African-Americans vote loyally for Democrats. So I don't really see any sort of sea change that's going to help President Trump do that. I think what's going to happen, though, is you're going to see people in the suburbs, again, I think white people in the suburbs, um, really take a look at President Trump and also really take a look at the cities that are on fire and wonder whether or not they they're worried about this. We saw some polling out of Wisconsin that said that in the last month, the approval rating for the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Lives Matter protest has gone down among independents, Democrats and Republicans. So there are a lot of Americans who are looking on at their TVs and scared of what they're seeing. 
Dan, Yamish mentioned the suburbs. We heard the word suburbs so much over the last four nights. It was, we heard the couple of the McCloskeys from St. Louis talking about how Democrats want to abolish the suburbs. We heard people speak directly to people who live in suburbs. What, what's behind that messaging? A, a constant criticism of Trump is that he just speaks the, his base very broadly. But when you look below the surface, that's not what was happening this week. This was a very targeted, in some cases, attempt to get at exactly those voters that they need. And as you just mentioned, as Yamisha mentioned, the suburban vote is critical. And suburban women voters in particular help Democrats take back the House. Republicans know that they can't uh, lose as badly as they did in 2018 in 2020. But some other sort of key voting blocks that the Trump campaign was messaging to Omna that deserve a mention, they weren't in prime time. Uh, that was reserved for, you know, your Kimberly Guilfoyles and Donald Trump Jr. and of course the vice president, the first lady. But earlier in the program, uh, we heard from a Wisconsin dairy farmer. Our entire economy and dairy farming are once again roaring back. One person deserves the credit and our vote, President Donald J. Trump. Wisconsin, of course, a critical swing state. We heard from a Minnesota logger. Minnesota is a state that Trump campaign barely touched in 2016. He almost won. It was under the radar, a close state. Um, now the Trump campaign has invested very heavily in Minnesota. They see that as a potential surprise pickup in the Midwest. We heard from a worker in Lordstown, Ohio, who spoke with Vice President Pence, talking about you know Trump's support for, for the manufacturing and auto industries. I visited Lordstown last year, spoke to auto workers in that area, spoke to a lot of uh, Democrats who had voted for Trump, but who were, told me that they were regretting their vote and considering not supporting him this time around. So these are examples, I think, Amna, of the Trump campaign saying these are particular groups and even, even more so particular states that they know they need to win back, and that's who they were speaking to. Yamish, let me ask you about the pandemic, though, because one of the things going into this week before the RNC, we asked ourselves was, how does the president present the pandemic? How does he talk about the pandemic when the U.S. leads the world in both the number of deaths and the sheer number of confirmed cases? You still have hundreds of Americans dying every day. What did you take away with the way about the way in which the president talked about the pandemic? Well, the president was really trying to defend himself, right? He was really trying to make the case, I did all that I possibly could do. Um, I think something that was really ironic was that he was saying, I really want to rely on scientists and data. But he, of course, he was delivering that message tonight in front of a sea of people who were not doing all the things that health officials tell you to do, which is maintain social distance, wear a mask, do all these things to keep yourself safe. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting is that the president continues to try to paint this Roy picture. And we saw a number of Republicans talk about the coronavirus almost in the past tense, as if the U.S. had somehow moved past it. What we know is that, as you said, the U.S. leads modernized, industrialized nations um, in deaths per capita. We are the worst nation when it comes to modernized countries that you would compare to us. Health officials tell us that over and over and over again. But you wouldn't know that um, watching the Republican National Convention. And really, the First Lady Melania Trump and her speech was markedly different than other things that we heard during the Republican National Convention. My deepest sympathy goes out to everyone who has lost a loved one. And my prayers are with those who are ill or suffering. I want you to know you're not alone. Dan, we know that the economy has been a central 
key theme for the president, right? Even back in 2016, it was one of the main things he ran on, that he could improve the economy. And a number of the speakers on the stage have talked about the strength of the economy. What did you take away from the way that they were talking about the economy right now? Well, a couple of things. You know, it's hard to uh, make a case that the pandemic is under control. The economy, though, is a different story because what Republicans tried to do this week, I think, is sort of reframe the debate, shift the focus away from what went wrong in March, in February. Instead, what they're doing now is saying, forget about the past. This is about the future. And if you are a small business owner whose business is closed, if you are uh, parents with a young child and are struggling with childcare, who is going to make your life easier by giving you your job back and letting you send your kid to school? Um, is that Joe Biden or is that Donald Trump? Who can reopen the country? Who can reopen the economy? That's the frame that they're using. And frankly, I think that it is effective because I think that there are voters out there who you know, are going to be looking at these two candidates and saying to themselves, come November, come January, who can improve my life the fastest? You know, I think there are people who are going to respond to that message and say, you know what, maybe Trump is onto something. Maybe if I do vote for him, I, I can get my job back faster. I can send my kid to school um, and, and help my life get a little bit better. So, Dan, one of the things we've heard this week was a lot about President Trump, right? And, and this is something the Democrats did last week, too. You heard a lot of storytelling around Joe Biden. You heard a lot about his record and so on. Yes, the whole point of the convention is to get people excited about the top of the ticket. But this in, in this week with the Republicans, there was much more of a focus on celebrating the work of President Trump on his successes, on positioning him as the one person that can lead us forward as a nation. And we should remind people that we came into the convention with the Republicans without a new party platform, right? What does all this say to you about where the party is right now and what that means for the leadership within the party? I mean, this is the party of Trump, right? Back in 2016, there's a big fight. We were even all of us reporters talking about a brokered convention, which of course didn't happen, um, you know, between the establishment moderates, the never Trumpers and Trump supporters. Um, you know, those divisions still exist. But for the most part, you know, this really is the president's party now. You think back to 2016 and Trump said in his acceptance speech famously, I alone can fix it. And four years later, that is still his message. This is not a message, this was not a, a convention, rather, of big ideas. As you put it, they didn't even adopt a new platform. Um, this was a convention of this is a man who has done good things for us, the Republican argument is, and he alone can continue to do them. You mean you spend a lot of time reporting on the president, talking to people around him, the Republican convention was supposed to be able to kind of put forward a plan for how the next four years would unfold, how Republicans would lead, how this president would lead. At the end of it, do you have a better idea of what another four years would look like under President Trump? It seems like it would look very much like the last four years. We saw some of the people who have been close to the president take the stage and essentially say everything that um, the president has done was great and that there really were no regrets, no issues, no missteps. So I think if we get another four years of President Trump, apart from, of course, a focus on tax cuts, immigration changes that are going to stymie legal and illegal immigration, um, uh, the talk of law and order, I think we might also get a, a robust effort to try to go after health care and a robust effort to kind of really go after the people that he feels like treated him wrongly. And I think that that, that could mean him targeting people, firing people. 
But I think the impeachment is something that he's not really going to forget. So as a result, I think he's really going to also hold that against Nancy Pelosi. So the next four years might also be deadlocked when it comes to passing legislation because this this relationship is so fractured because of the impeachment. I have to ask you, we're now at a point where we filled in a lot of the blanks about what a virtual convention could look like, right? Two weeks ago, everyone said, how are they going to do it? What's it going to look like? What will it actually be like to cover it? Now we know. We know what the Democrats put forward over their four nights. We know what the Republicans have put forward, both in terms of presentation and of messaging. What do you take away from where we are as a country right now when you look at how the last two weeks have unfolded? When I think about the last two weeks, I think we have a vast difference between what everyday Americans think about what America should be and what it can be. If you're a Democrat, you think that President Trump is ruining the country and that African-Americans are not being treated fairly and that nothing is being done. And if you're a Republican, you think that in some ways people are, are, are focused on victimization. Literally, we someone said Democrats want you to be victims and embrace this ideology. And that um, the idea of, of talking about the pandemic as if we can't acknowledge that there are 180,000 Americans dead, that that is somehow undermining the president. So I think what it leaves me with is feeling kind of a little sad because I think as a political reporter, I'm looking at this and thinking, how are we ever going to get better as a, a society? Because we have such polarized views. And Dan, even in the messaging, even in these virtual conventions, what we heard from each side was if the other side wins, it's the end of the country as you know it. It's either the end of democracy or the end of your freedoms, however both sides phrased it. To Yamiche's point, what happens now when the two sides are so diametrically opposed and are both saying this way ruin lies? You know something, you know, Yamish mentioned uh, coming away feeling a little sad. I'm going to jump on on that bandwagon and say that I'm coming away feeling also sad and also cynical from the perspective of how do we as a country <clears throat> solve big problems? Um, and it's funny because at each convention every four years, the sort of narrative is framed as two different Americas. Um, and there have always been differences between the two parties. This is the first convention I've covered where I feel that that, that slogan really tr and truly applies, that these are two different ideas of, of our values as a country, two different sets of priorities, speaking to two very different audiences. Um, and it, they're just worlds apart. And it doesn't take a crystal ball to look ahead to November. And to look ahead to January and, you know, some 60 odd million people are going to vote for President Trump and some 60 odd million people are going to vote for Joe Biden. Those are the numbers from 2016. They'll obviously shift a little bit in each direction. But that's going to mean that um, on one side, whoever wins, 60 million plus Americans are going to be very, very angry and very disappointed. I know you guys are not going to make me leave it on that note with sadness and a lack of hope. So let me just say that over the last two weeks, what has really inspired me and brought me hope has been watching you guys work and watching all of our colleagues work. And I know this was not the convention or either of the conventions that any of us expected. But here we are. And we've got the messages from both sides now. And, you know, I guess the good news is just a couple of months to go before the election. Is that good news? I can't tell anymore. Well, well, right back at you, Amna and Yamish and, and everybody, all of our colleagues in the news hour. This is um, the moment in a convention where everybody's gathered in a hotel room, you know, having a drink or, or, or reminiscing about the crazy week that just happened. And, and we can't do that. So instead, we can do it virtually in this podcast. 
Yeah, I mean, at least we're having fun talking from our respective basements. <laughs> well, from my little closet to both of you in your basements and closets, I am grateful. And it's been great to cover these conventions alongside you guys. And we've got two months of work ahead of us and many, many more. So my thanks to both Yami Shalcindor and Daniel Bush. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Leah Nagy and Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Frank Carlson, Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website. That's pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.